Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Mark Bauerlein, Senior Editor at First Things and Professor of English at Emory University. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today, we have a very exciting guest, Dr. Mark Bauerlein. Mark is Emeritus Professor of English at Emory University, where he started teaching in 1989 after earning his doctorate at UCLA in 1988. He's been the editor at First Things Magazine since 2014. He's the author of many books, including Literary Criticism, An Autopsy, and The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. Welcome to the program. I'm glad to join you. So, Mark, I want to hear, you, you've had a major transition in your career. I've known you now for four or five years. Uh, tell our audience a bit about your academic background, uh, teaching career. Well, I went to graduate school at UCLA in, in 1982 is when I started. I bounced around as an undergraduate from different majors. Uh, it took me five years and uh, a few summer schools to finally get through because I was inebriated for much of my first two years uh, at UCLA, where, where I was an undergraduate. But uh, I always read uh, a lot of books. Often I didn't read for for school. I, I blew off uh, a lot of my readings in school in high school and read other things on, on my own. But reading was always important to me. And so as I was, you know, hitting my third year of college, what am I going to major in? Uh, philosophy, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know, history, uh, English. I'll, I'll, I'll do English, like reading a lot of novels. So I majored in English and simply had the goal of just becoming a, a well-read, well-educated person. I had no career goals. I graduated uh, as, as an undergrad and thought, you know, I, I really need to do a lot more reading. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much broke. I, I get through with odd jobs working at things like, you know, selling newspapers at the Del Mar racetrack for a few summers and trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. And the one thing I was certain was I, I got to keep reading. I got to keep learning things. I didn't really think of it as a career, but I applied to the UCLA graduate program and they let me in as a, as a master's student to see if my grades would, would get any better and whether they then approved me to keep going. But it, it was just a chance for me to keep reading. And I thought, wow, you know, I can, I can keep, keep, you know, piling up the books and, uh, and again, try to, try to live in dumps, uh, in, in squalor, you know, pay $105 a month rent for these one room, uh, flea bag places in bad parts of town. But if I had all the books and uh, I could I could eat enough uh, oatmeal and spaghetti, then I, I could get by. I didn't care. There was Wordsworth on the wall to read and 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 Hegel and and uh, Wallace Stevens. So 
I was just reading for years and kind of just fell into making a career out of it. It, it. it went pretty well. And so I just kept going in the program, got a degree and ended up very luckily getting a job at Emory University as an assistant professor and was very much caught up in the academic world, the academic research world and, and reading all the cutting edge uh, literary theory stuff. But over the course of the 90s, uh, I became disenchanted with the academic study of literature because it got politicized in, I think, a stupid way. And sexual issues, uh, queer theory, all that stuff was, was becoming very strong in the 1990s. It just didn't interest me. Uh, I was still caught up in sort of these old big issues of, of truth and and life and and God and 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 mortality and freedom and all, all and all the love, and I steadily became disenchanted, uh, disaffected from the course of literary studies through the '90s and into the aughts. I found I, I was a liberal. I was very strongly political liberal, but I'd be an education conservative. What Don Hirsch, E.D. Hirsch calls himself an education conservative, although Don is a political liberal, he would never vote Republican. It's someone who believes in sort of a core tradition. You believe that there are certain books that are great, and most books are not so great, uh, that you have a responsibility to absorb a tradition and then hand it along pass it down to others. You say to students that if they do not read the first four books of the Aeneid, then they're going to be you know, incomplete adults. You have no hesitation. That, that's an education conservative. And that was me. And that became steadily an estranging position for someone who would argue for Western civilization in the higher reaches of academia. It was all, you know, identity stuff, race, class, and gender, and sexuality stuff. And I would add that as the multiculturalist political imperative increased, people became less well-read Young people I found came out of graduate school applying for jobs at Emory. We were hiring a lot of young people in the mid, late 90s. They weren't that well educated. They came from top schools, but you could see they were going to struggle teaching a survey course. The generalist knowledge wasn't there. They'd specialized very early in their careers, and they were reading more theory than reading the classics. And it showed they were very thin in terms of their humanitas. Mark, I want to hear more about this this kind of transition. Uh, you know, you described yourself for for years and years as a a very liberal professor, but I think many know you now as as one of the most kind of fearless uh, critics of the kind of secular orthodoxy. Uh, that is present at many universities. Uh, were you were you quiet as your as your thoughts were changing over the years, or was there a moment where you kind of said, "I need to speak up about these things"? I was always irritatingly open, uh, because not because not out of courage. I don't want to say because I actually was afraid 
of offending colleagues. I mean, I wanted to be a good guy. Liberals don't want to be hated. They want to be loved and everyone likes one another. I wanted to be one of the good guys and have, you know, those, those women's studies professors like me. Uh, and so I would state a position, an education conservative position. I was very open about that early on, but I really wanted to make it something that wouldn't cause tension that we could argue over these curriculum issues, the requirements that we had for the major or for graduate admissions, but that we all were good friends. We were colleagues. And one of the things that pushed me to the right, more broadly, politically, was to see the inflexibility of my leftist colleagues, the intolerance of these people preaching tolerance, the exclusion uh, practiced by those who spoke of inclusion so much. And I observed the discipline going further left. I noticed that my moderate liberal colleagues, you know, reasonable people who might even have some education conservative attitudes, they were powerless to stand up to the, the more radical people in the department. They were scared of the left and it drove me crazy. And they were scared of the left because the left would call upon racism and sexism and the civil rights movement and women's lib and, and, and gay rights and so on. They had that moral fervor that the liberals couldn't contest. And over time, so I, I saw, you know, we're not going to read Ezra Pound because Pound, Pound was an anti-Semitic swine. So we're not going to read Ezra Pound, one of the great poets of the 20th century. Nope, that's out. We're going to submit aesthetic criteria to political criteria. And that really bothered me. I mean, I believed in greatness. I believed in aesthetic, some degree of aesthetic independence. And that if we lose the capacity to judge artworks on artistic grounds that aren't subsumed to political, ideological, identitarian considerations, the humanities are over. It's not the humanities anymore. It's some shadowy social science that, that we're doing. Instead, you have to be able to develop a sensibility a taste, an eye for beauty. That very often, and this is the old question of art, art can be beautiful and immoral. But humanitas demands a capacity to experience the aesthetic side without the immorality interrupting that experience. If you can't do that, then you're lacking something in your character. You're closing your mind off to a dimension of human experience. You're narrow-minded, you're bigoted if you do this. So we can read Gulliver's Travels. I mean, book four of Gulliver's Travels is a nasty piece of work. 
I mean, it, it is, it is, it is misanthropic. It is misogynist. I mean, uh, Gulliver can't be in his wife's presence. He thinks she smells. He thinks she thinks her femininity is gross. Uh, so once we start losing the taste for the aesthetic, well, Gulliver's going to have to go. A lot of masterpieces are going to have to go, and this is what we're seeing taking place right now. And so I, I saw the seeds of this over the course of the 90s and into the aughts. That pushed me uh, to the right. I started to see some, there's something wrong with my liberalism in that it can't fend off the incursions, the aggressions of the left. And again, I was, I was, oh, I was always open. I was always open about it. Uh, the difference was that whereas I wanted to appease people, you know, by 2005, I, I, I didn't, I didn't care about appeasing people. That's a waste of time. Let them hate me. Yeah. You know, besides I would smile. I don't want to, I don't want to get into arguments with colleagues over things. I didn't want to become a, a martyr or anything. I wasn't ridiculous enough to believe that I'm being persecuted uh, for being a, an open conservative. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all tenured professors in, in the academy and the humanities ought to get down and kiss, kiss their, their, the floors of their office. I'm so lucky. Gosh, mm. I'm lucky. So uh, what I also found is the more open you are, the less trouble you have. If, and if you're, if you have a smile, if you're a, a civil person, but holding firm to a conservative position that people don't like, they're, they're not going to uh, make your life awful. I, I, that, that, that's, that's my overall experience. Thanks. Well, Mark, you've been either as a student or a professor, uh, connected to higher ed since the early 1980s. You've seen a lot of change. I'm wondering, what, what are your predictions now for the future? We're, we're looking at a year, CLT works closely with a lot of, I, I, what I think are a lot of the very best colleges. Uh, we saw huge enrollment application increases at places like Hillsdale, Grove City, Wyoming Catholic, Christian and Benedictine, University of Dallas. Uh, at the same time, there's actually a contraction overall uh, in higher ed. So from our perspective, we're seeing parents going to colleges that are very much committed to tradition, uh, to the canon. Um, those, those seem to be having a, a bright future. Uh, what do you predict for the next 10, uh, 15 years? What's going to happen to higher ed? Well, let's say that the elite educational opinion doesn't match up with popular opinion in America. Uh, when the University of Chicago English Department said they only want to accept graduate students who will pledge to specialize in uh, African-American or African-derived materials, it was an embarrassment for the rest of the country. People don't like the kind of identity politics. And so when the humanities departments, as they go all in on the woke position, it's the natural thing is going to happen in an open marketplace. 
people are going to go elsewhere. It doesn't surprise me that your test, which has a more traditional orientation, is in a real nice growth mode. Oh, I mean, that, that this is where people are going to go. No matter how much the elite tries to discredit tradition, great books and so on, they're not swaying parents who feel responsible for their 17-year-old kids and what's going to happen to them when they go to college. They are swaying the millennials who are 33 years old who don't have kids. If those millennials, they do have kids, they might feel a little differently about the woke college campus. Now, what the woke stuff is doing to the humanities on the the big well-known campuses is they're destroying the humanities and students are going elsewhere. The majors are diminishing in numbers in English and philosophy and history and, and, and so on. I mean, their they're history's down. Since 2011, history's down about 30% yes. in terms of the number, the absolute number of history majors, English, classics, philosophy, they're down more than 20%. Foreign languages, the, the same thing. So they're, they're becoming just window dressing, very marginal, less than 12% of all students in four-year colleges major in any humanities subject. Boy, what a change from 50 years ago, right? So uh, the people are, what you're seeing, what you're describing, not only people going to places like University of Dallas and Wyoming Catholic and Hillsdale, but also toward the classic learning test, this is just the natural turn, people voting with their feet. They don't, a a percentage of them increasingly don't like it when they find out, you know, their, their daughter wants to major in English. Let's go look at the website of the English department at the University of Chicago. Boy, listen to this. It's this, you know, my, my daughter wants to major in English because she loves reading Jane Austen. This, this is gonna, she's not, She's not someone who sits wants to sit around in a classroom to hear some some tenured English professor go on about systemic racism in America. But when they go to the Hillsdale's English department, oh, they they use a word like tradition. How nice. So I, I, I think that this is popular opinion diverging from elite opinion. And elite opinion needs people. English English departments need students to major in English, but there's no reason for them to exist. Mm. And you know what? Increasingly, when someone retires, the dean says, why should I replace that person? Your, your classes are less than half full. So, I mean, o- overall, in the research universities, it's all the sciences now. That's where the money is. This is where the professional schools are, are doing important things. It's, uh, it's, it's the biomedical sciences, it's engineering, it's the STEM subjects. And then at the graduate level, the law school is a business school, right? This is, this is what the research university is about now. English, women's study, you know, the studies for a college president, those things are, are microscopic. They're just a cost of doing business. I mean, I'm, I'm going to worry about what, what 
you know, these three women's studies professors are putting out some, writing some op-ed, whereas I've got to deal with a hundred million dollar building project. I've got two researchers over in the medical school who are working with a drug manufacturer on a contract that could bring us $500 million. I mean, two, two Emory researchers, this is about 10 or 12 years ago, were working on an AIDS drug that brought $525 million to Emory. And I'm gonna worry about, you know, the, the degradation of the humanities. Look, look we'll, 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 let the, we'll let the undergraduates drifting elsewhere take care of that problem. So in, in this kind of context, what's your advice to parents, uh, to students, if they're top students and they can get into Columbia or Harvard um, and, and have a great law school ahead of them after that, uh, is your advice not to go? What would you say to these students? It, it depends. I mean, it, it, at many of these schools, you can still get an excellent education. At Emory, at Emory, it's possible for you to get a weak undergraduate education in the humanities, but it is also possible to get a very strong humanities education. There are good people there. You just have to be careful. You have to be vigilant. Select your courses wisely. So if if you get into one of those top schools and you have the money, then I, I would I would say do that. I mean this is the way the pipeline works. The elite controls the pipelines so much in in this country. And try to maintain your, your political moral balance against the pressures, uh, the ideological pressures that you might find. Now, if you're not thinking so much of elite pipeline, don't go to those top schools that are so expensive that uh, don't guarantee a better education than you would get at University of Dallas or, or the unique experience of Wyoming Catholic. Uh, don't go into massive debt just in order to get a, a, a degree from, from one, of the, one of the top schools. I think what one of the things that is becoming clear is that the financial cost of some of these schools can burden you for 20 years. And if you're a top student and you have a, a scholarship opportunity from one of the more great books oriented colleges versus paying a ton of money to go to Columbia and I, I, I think you, uh, I think you should look very hard at your prospects after graduation, whether you want that financial burden hanging over your head. Well, Mark, let's turn, uh, turn back to the good, the good stuff, the good old days. Uh, you uh, are someone who clearly has been devouring books for for quite some time. I- I'm wondering if there's one book that you kind of keep coming back to, maybe year after year, that. Uh, young people listening, if you want to say you got to go read this book right now, drop whatever else you're reading. Is there one work that stands out above all the rest? Well, I, I can't I can't single out one work, but what I will say is that there are certain works of philosophy 
that I go back into every once in a while, simply as kind of a mental exercise, you know, Mm -hmm. keeping the mind flexible. I will dip into Hegel's phenomenology, not because I'm a Hegelian, but to enter into that dialectical universe of, of, of that German romanticism, it's, it's, it's sort of refreshing. Or, or Kojev's lectures on Hegel's phenomenology. Same thing. Uh, Heidegger's Being in Time. Let's jump into that. I'm just reading a few pages and getting, okay, well, what is, what is the, you know, this is, this, is, this is not simple now. It's not easy to absorb. Doesn't get easier. Uh, Charles Sanders Peirce's essays, some of his essays on method and truth. Uh, those uh, I'll go back to. And William James's Pragmatism uh, essays as well. So great philosophical speculations, not older, really starting with, with, the, starting with Hegel, uh, the, that dialectical turn that, that, that he made. That, that tradition of, of philosophy, uh, looking at what, uh, you know, what, what John Austin wrote about sense certainty, you know, the English philosopher, the 20th century. Those are the things, you know, little Wittgenstein here, yeah. speculative gems that, you know, sort of make you think little touchstones that that I'll go back to. That That's what I would say here. Again, we're here with the one and only Dr. Mark Bauerlein. Mark, th- thanks so much for your time today. I'm glad to join you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week.